This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Imagine attending a dinner party and being unable to leave. So goes the story of Luis Buñuel's surrealist film, The Exterminating Angel. What does a story like this sound like in operatic form? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Thomas Addis's new opera, The Exterminating Angel, premieres this October at the Met with an all-star cast, including Amanda Eschelaz, Alice Coote, Rod Gilfrey, and Audrey Luna. In The New Yorker, Alex Ross described the music. He wrote, Addis conjures both the vanished past and the ephemeral present, waltzes in a crumbling ballroom, pounding beats in a pop arena. Here is lecturer W. Anthony Shepard taking a deeper look at this acclaimed new work in the surrealist movie that inspired it. Have you heard the one about the group of wealthy Spanish socialites who attend a dinner party following an opera performance and, after withdrawing to the drawing room, find themselves utterly incapable of leaving? This joke turns rather dark and surrealistic as one gentleman who found the entire situation unfunny dies. An engaged young couple commit bloody suicide. One delirious woman stabs another's hand. A conductor floats through the air and attempts a rape. Several guests weep in despair, and the group threatens to sacrifice their host, who instead fends off starvation after sacrificing some miraculous lambs. An agnus dei ex machina, I suppose. That was my best joke. An agnus dei ex machina, I suppose. They finally find themselves able to leave the room after a musical performance, only to be trapped all over again with a larger crowd at the very end. This, my dear sheep, is the plot of Thomas Odessa's The Exterminating Angel, which is based on Louis Buñuel's 1962 classic surrealistic film. The opera scenario follows the film quite closely, 
Though in the film, the final sequence takes place in a cathedral with a mass in celebration of the socialites' release. The entire congregation and clergy then finds it impossible to leave that cathedral. In the opera, we hear a bit of the Requiem Mass floating in from who knows where as the characters, and by extension all of us, are framed as unable to leave the stage and the opera house. Fear not, your shepherd will explain the meaning of all of this for you when or if we reach the end. As you may know, I have tickets for tonight too, don't worry. Um, as you may know, this is the third opera of Odessa, following up on his 1995 Powder Her Face and 2004 The Tempest, which we saw here at the Met. Odessa's music is characterized by density and rhythmic intensity, stylistic citation and melodic quotation, and a postmodern wit at play with an overall modernist idiom. His music is also marked by a penchant for extremes. For instance, he really favors the extreme upper register, featuring a high coloratura, both in The Tempest and Exterminating Angel, which also includes a part for countertenor and boy soprano. His orchestration has been quite eccentric in some works, as in Powder Her Face, which called for a button accordion, a fishing reel, and lots of percussion, including pop gun, washboard, brake drums, and electric bell. Odessa's music has repeatedly called forth the term surrealist from critics, and not only because his mother is a historian of surrealistic painting. With the exterminating angel, Odessa appears to have fully embraced this aesthetic label. Before we explore how an operatic score might be surrealist, Let's turn to art to remind ourselves of this aesthetic. So when you think of surrealistic paintings by Dali or Max Ernst or uh, photographs by Mon Ray, um, you think of the distortion of reality. Reality is there, but it's made strange. The everyday is made strange. There are incongruous juxtapositions, things you would never see together in real life, but brought together in surrealistic paintings. Often surrealistic paintings frame and quote works of art to undermine art or to play with art within the surrealistic frame. There's also a prevalence of violence or the threat of violence, especially directed towards women in surrealistic paintings, along with a rather twisted sense of eroticism, more than a touch of the macabre and a lot of decay. So I thought it would help if we looked at um, some paintings of surrealism to get this into our eye and mind. The very first painting you're about to see um, coming up here, uh, visible over here, is the body stripped bare. There's a duet in tonight's opera, and if you already heard it on Thursday, you know there's a duet where when the lovers get uh, quite worked up in their Liebestod, they say to each other, they imagine each other flayed and they think about their innards and the bones and the wooden tendons and all that. It reminded me of this painting, which also, as you can see, within the frame is quoting a more realistic art uh, piece inside. Or this piece to Chirico. And in this painting, um, we have uh, something ominous. It's totally everyday, except it's not, right? It's a street scene that is strangely elongated. A child playing with a hoop and yet with that threatening shadow coming around the corner. 
Salvador Dali, persistence of memory. Here we have watches um, um, that are not in their usual state and a bunch of bugs uh, on that watch or ants as though it is decaying. And then something that looks like half fish, half uh, man with whiskers or an eyelash drooping, decaying on the beach. And I'll go Salvador Dali again. Many realistic depictions of tigers, elephants, except with long legs on stilts, and the aggressive um, uh, threat of violence against the female body on display. Um, Callot, here we have a female surrealistic painter, uh, depicting her agony as uh, someone who was confined, who was bedridden for a time in her life, um, and um, all that is going on in her mind being spewed out her mouth up there above. Magritte, the emptiness of the man with realistic depiction of birds. Magritte again, nothing strange about these gentlemen except they're raining, right? Magritte again, this is not a pipe. Well then, questioning our relationship with art. Man Ray, melting bodies here with Masson. Uh, and then Max Ernst, uh, a depiction of both quoting the actual painting we're looking at within the painting, um, and very deformed bodies, threat of violence with that sphere, also a phallic placement of that sphere. I think we've seen enough surrealist uh, paintings for this evening. So how is the opera going to be surrealist? Can music be surrealist? Though most frequently employed to describe painters, the term surrealism was actually coined by the French poet Apollinaire to describe a ballet and its musical score. The Ballet Russe's 1917 production, Parade. How did Eric Satie's score for Parade exhibit what might be termed a surrealistic aesthetic exactly 100 years ago? Through his surprising stylistic juxtapositions in that ballet, as when Satie has the work open with a very serious fugue followed immediately by some repetitive noodling and later by a ragtime tune or his sonic incongruities, as when Satie used gunshots and typewriter sounds employed musically. Some people in the audience are thinking, hold on, that reminds me of an opera I just heard on Thursday night. Gunshot. Um, the late scholar of interdisciplinary modernism, Daniel Albright, wrote that surrealist music often involved wrongness, dislocating and miscontextualizing musical material as when something frivolous musically is heard at a moment when something serious is called for in the drama or vice versa. Or when the music seems to go off the rails entirely in response to the text, as in another surrealistic uh, ballet, uh, Poulenc and Apollinaire's The Breasts of Tiresias, when uh, one character refers to the word bull and suddenly the orchestra takes off with Spanish sounding music for a while even though the drama keeps going and has nothing to do with Spain or bulls. In The Exterminating Angel, a desk came by his surrealism naturally, courtesy of Buñuel. We know something is wrong only a few minutes into the film when, after viewing the guests entering the mansion, the film seems to skip and the entire sequence is repeated before our very eyes. Though now, the camera angle is from above rather than from below, a subtle difference that most often is missed in discussion of the films. All right, I saw it three times before I noticed. It's not exactly the same. In fact, the odd repetitions in both the film and the opera 
always include differences, as when the host repeats a toast and the guests the second time continue discussing and chatting away without listening to his toast at all. Critics and Ades himself frequently state that this film lacks music. However, though there is no continuous soundtrack in the film, we do hear multiple diegetic and some non-diegetic musical sections, which means music that the characters hear and music that is background to the film. For instance, during the main title sequence, we hear an organ and a chanting choir as we see the cathedral facade. Thus, the film starts where it will also end. The pianist character plays a virtuosic piece to entertain the guests. A very bizarre dream sequence late in the film includes chanting as well. Though the characters make references to Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor, the opera that they've attended that evening, I find no musical references to that opera beyond the name of the hostess, Lucia, in either the film or opera. However, perhaps I should note that Lucia's madness in Donizetti's opera is in part signaled by her reenacting, repeating the act one love scene during her final mad scene, time repeating surreal surrealistically for her as though in her madness she is stuck in the past. Of course, in that romantic rather than surrealistic opera, the other characters do not experience any temporal repetition, and so she is framed as alone in her madness, unlike these maids who, oh, they just entered? Oh, they just entered again? They seem completely unfazed by this fact. In crafting their libretto, the two Toms, Odess and Cairns, Tom Cairns, remained very close to the film, consolidating a few characters placing a bit more emphasis on the musician characters, an opera soprano, a conductor, and a concert pianist, and adding more musical performances within the story. The opera is remarkable for the large number of characters who remain ever-present on the stage. In the film, Buñuel was able to zoom in on two or three characters engaged in conversation, letting us learn the identities and relationships of these characters through these close-ups. The staging of this opera has to find some parallels to direct our attention. Keeping the characters straight is also aided musically through the score, as Odess, to some extent, employs different melodic styles for different characters, helping to distinguish them for us. For example, the music of the two young lovers is more lyrical and, more, and marked by more consonant intervals. In contrast, the hostess and host, the old married couple, frequently sing very disjunct melodic lines as follows. So here, uh, the husband is saying, oh my God, they haven't left, the night's passed. And he sings, he sings, as any husband would, uh, what the hell is happening, right? Except he sings it to this tune with these huge leaps. What the hell is happening? And she answers just as disjunctly, we'll give them breakfast. They're bound, uh, then they're bound to leave. He sings, 
I hope so. I'm counting on you. No, sorry, I'll trust you. So they both have very similar disjunct melodic lines that are very much in contrast to the young lovers, uh, that, that couple. The opera is rather cinematic in its temporal leaps without any pause between some scenes. For instance, between scenes three and four and five and six in act one, time has passed. They must have eaten dinner. They refer to being full. But there is no indication or pause in the music at all. We just go, jump from one scene to the next. This is similar to film and its ability cutting from one location and moment to another without pause or transition. And it adds to the opera's general surrealist take on all things temporal. In fact, in some sections, the opera feels even more surrealistic to me than the film. Something about seeing sheep on stage surpasses screened surrealism. But as others have noted, Odessa's take on this story is particularly dark and savage, bordering on expressionism. I'd now like to introduce and explore three ways in which I find Odessa's music to be surrealistic. His use of surprising sound sources, his stylistic quotations and allusions, and his occasionally very odd mismatches between words and their musical setting. In The Tempest, Caliban memorably states that this isle is full of noises. The same could certainly be said of this opera. The score calls for everything from miniature violins to a slamming door to gunfire. This includes an interlude featuring the martial sound of offstage drums playing a rhythm that derives from the massed drumming tradition of Calanda, Spain, still heard today during the town's annual Easter week celebrations. Calanda was Buñuel's hometown, and he directed a short documentary film of this tradition, which plays up its surrealistic quality. So I'm skipping uh, into the film where we see the moment in this documentary that turns quite surreal. There's been no indication what is about to happen in this town, and suddenly this happens. L'Evangile dit que lorsque le Christ est mort, les cieux furent envahis par les ténèbres, que les rochers se fracassèrent les uns contre les autres, et que le tonnerre gronda dans les entrailles de la terre. Les habitants de Kalanda, le vendredi de la semaine sainte, vont jouer du tambour durant 24 heures.
Thank you. Um, Odessa's interlude does not last 24 hours, unlike the tradition, um, but it goes on for a while, and it's actually quite shocking um, to hear. I can attest that the sonic assault of this offstage drumming is rather terrifying at the Met, as it somehow and somewhere is reverberating way upstairs in the rafters in the upper levels. Um, so, Ades is not only drawing on Buñuel's Exterminating Angel, he's making reference to this um, surrealistic style documentary um, and other films by Buñuel are, uh, as well are referenced in the opera. As we enter the opera house, the prologue begins with the sound of bells, signaling the cyclic, never-ending nature of this work. And this worked especially well at the Salzburg premiere, a town with many bells and many churches, giving the impression that the external world had been brought inside the theater or that there was no division between the two. The score's most striking sound emanates from the Ones Martineau, Martineau's Waves, an early electronic instrument created in 1928 that produces sci-fi-worthy sci glissandi that Odess has referred to as, variously, the voice of the exterminating angel. As in the score, it says, the voice of the bear. Or as being, quote, like the sirens of Greek mythology saying, stay. He notes that this instrument is repeatedly heard in his opera, quote, whenever a figure says something that contributes to the situation of immobility, such as, oh, let's stay a little while, then you hear the Ones Martin Doe. The video clip, um, which we will watch uh, briefly, that you may have seen on, uh, in the New York Times, that uh, gives us just a brief um, uh, experience of the pit of this orchestra uh, for this score and you get to see a little bit of the Owens Martineau and I should mention this instrument has a keyboard but it's not played it's just to give you an indication of where the pitches are the way you play it is you have this ring on your finger connected to the ribbon like this ribbon and by sliding around you are creating these glissandi uh, and you look at the keyboard to give you a sense of where you are in terms of pitch so here we go the Ones Martineau after the guests' first entrance, and more prominently during their second, as they declare that they are enchanted to meet each other. So the Ones Martineau seems to be the sound of their enchantment. The Ones Martineau plays a cadenza as the guests fail to leave and sit or lie down on stage in the, in the drawing room instead. This electronic instrument is even given an obligato part as the pianist plays and sings of a bird of paradise in, in her song, with the Ones Martineau then performing, quote from the score, a bird of paradise cadenza, marked unearthly, not controlled by human will. 
Letitia, the opera singer, the coloratura, stops the pianist from continuing to sing this song, as though Letitia intuits that only she herself should sing, and that in the end it will be her singing alone that frees them. Similarly, another character in a delirious state stabs that poor pianist's hand, thereby almost killing off the possibility of the necessary piano repetition that will lead to Letitia's final aria that will lead to the group's temporary release. They don't get far. Equally surrealistic are the sudden appearances in the score of pre-existent styles and even pieces from the musical past, all distorted and juxtaposed as are realistic objects quoted and misplaced in a surrealistic painting. Ades has commented repeatedly on his use of the waltz in this opera to signal a, quote, feeling of elegance, but also to signal undertoes and distortions of the vortex of horror lying at the heart of this plot. Ades explains the particular aptness of the waltz form for this plot, quote, I often, I won't try his British accent, I often feel the waltzes of Johann Strauss are saying, why don't you stay a little longer? Don't worry about what's going on outside. So in the context of my opera, the waltz becomes very dangerous. In Act, one, Act 2, Scene 1, in a fugue of panic, he layered distorted motifs from Johann Strauss to represent the characters panicking and not being able to leave. However, we first hear the waltz style as the hostess, Lucia, uh, begins to announce the evening's menu. And the waltz is sort of just hinted at here. She sings, My friends, you must all forgive me for changing the, and she's changing the pitches chromatically here, natural, nothing natural, there we got two flats sneaking in, order, and I won't even try that high C jumping down uh, to an A flat, okay? But you feel the lilt of the waltz starting there. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And whenever in the opera she tries to entertain her guests, we get a little bit of that waltz feel creeping in. For instance, after they've been trapped for a while and she offers them breakfast, she tries to sneak back into the waltz. They've been up for a while by that point. The score is marked waltz tempo as another character, Silvius, makes an excuse for not leaving. And the sinister side of the waltz is felt as Rock, the conductor, flies around the room before landing to attempt to ravish one of the sleeping women. This is by far my favorite bit of waltz material, employed by Odessa, because it is a near quotation from a big gesture in Maurice Ravel's La Valse, a rather surrealistic orchestral piece from 1920 that, like his own bolero, seems to say, aha, you will never leave this ballroom until you waltz yourselves right over the cliff. So first we're going, we're going to be listening only to a bit, that bit from Ravel, La Valse. I actually had a student some years ago, at the time I thought it was a crazy idea, but now I think it was brilliant. He wrote a thesis about the surrealism in Ravel, and there's a lot of surrealism in Ravel. The Child and the Enchanted Objects, that's a very surrealistic opera. So here's the relevant moment in uh, Ravel, La Valse.
Yes, it's gonna come back. Don't cut it off. He'll never let us go. So I'm going to cut it off. Um, but now I'm going to jump to Odessa's opera and play that moment where the conductor is flying around the room and is threatening. He's trying to ravish this sleeping woman on the stage of the Met right before our very eyes and ears. Characters die when bells ring in this opera. He doesn't get far. Um, actually, all right. Wouldn't be cool to, to prove this. I mean, you don't need proof. You believe anything I tell you. But really prove it by showing you, we're going to see this, um, showing you a des and a friend um, playing uh, the Ravel, La Valse, two hands, uh, two pianos. That's it. He's a pretty good pianist. Um, he's also spent a lot of time in the percussion section and orchestras growing up, and so that comes out in his operas as well. So the Ravel, I like that quote very much. But probably the most frequently noted and most important quote of musical material is a very distorted, I would dare say surrealistically distorted, version of um, a piece that you all know and love by J.S. Bach. That's, that's a pretty you know, big thing to play with for him. He's taking Bach's Sheep May Safely Graze from a cantata 238 as we observe the guests eating, and we're going to listen to this here, eating and watching this too. Watching is good for this. He eating their roasted sacrificial lamb.
And now for the Adess. Here's his twisted, surrealistic, and intensely dissonant version of the music you just heard by Bach. And this is, we, this is what we hear as they are dining on for lovely lambkins. <laughs> I know what's happening to those sheep, and it ain't pretty. <clears throat> Actually, we first hear Odessa's incredibly distorted, dissonant Bach early in the opera when the guests enter, and right after Blanca's first piano performance. She's the concert pianist, which suggests that this music is the music of enchantment as well. That very pizzicato, detached articulation in the orchestra points out what would have been a harpsichord sound in Bach's day, um, but here it's the full orchestra being treated in this very blunt, aggressive way. Finally, this being a score by Odess, there are numerous other stylistic references that we could point to, a treasure hunt of delights for nerdy musicologists. In the film, the pianist plays Toccata in A Major from Paradisi's Sonata No. 6. Paradisi, an 18th century uh, composer. Though the opera characters also identify the piano music we hear as being by Paradisi, Odess instead composed variations on a Landino Sephardic song, which he says, quote, has an unassuageable harmonic structure very typical of Jewish music of longing and bereavement. And there's a joke, I'll give it away, in the opera when uh, we hear the, the Odessa's version of Paradisi's music played by a piano, uh, and the characters, one of the characters says, now play something by Odessa. Uh, and they said, no, right? But of course, we just heard something by Odessa. And it's even funnier because wherever Odessa goes in many European countries, his name is pronounced um, more like 80s, like Hades. And Hades, Paradisi, get it? He thought it was funny.
I hear a bit of Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique style for Odessa's Witches Trio. When three of the female guests, and I'm not making this up, describe their sur surrealistic visions that they observed when they lifted the lid of a toilet. Every time they went in, they saw something different. Ades, it's like Salvador Dali, Ades has repeatedly declared his admiration for Berlioz. We hear a distinct mariachi style with trumpets in thirds for the scene depicting the crowd gathering outside the mansion gates. Ades has noted that Buñuel was living in exile in Mexico when he made the film, so Ades thinks this is appropriate to suddenly, in this very dense score, brighten things up with some mariachi music, which I will not reward you with at this moment. All right. No, okay. All right. Say O again, and I'll find it. All right, hold on. We're just going to listen. You don't have to look at anything. All right. So here we go. Odessa's music is most comically and absurdly surreal in moments of text music mismatch or when the music is distorted excessively in response to some word that a character says. Some of this comic text setting is readily audible as when several characters declare in a fugal texture that they'll all be right behind the colonel as he attempts to leave. Get it? A fugue is, you know, we'll, we'll all be right behind, we'll all be right, we'll all be right, right? It's like a row, row, row here, but we'll all be right behind you, right? And they are, we're all behind each other. Fugal texture. Or when the doctor declares, we must remain completely calm to an increasingly agitated and disjunct melodic line. But my favorite example of a surrealistic mismatch is the spoons aria. Couple people know what I'm talking about. Okay, the spoons aria. At this moment in the evening, or days later, actually, um, the young man Francisco, who has lots of nervous breakdowns, he's a countertenor, uh, complain, <laughs> complains that there are only teaspoons rather than coffee spoons, and that he therefore cannot drink his coffee. I find it very revealing that a desk could see potential for a beautiful aria that morphs into a beautiful duet in this bit of banal and absurd dialogue. He composed in a rather Baroque high style with a very lyrical slow tempo, tempo but with some truly surreal twisted chromaticism with sharp and flat um, alternation. So I will give you a taste of that and you will think that I'm playing the wrong notes, but you would be wrong. Forgive me, Lucci. Oh, I did play it wrong. that despite all that bizarre, chromatic slipperiness, that it actually sounds beautiful um, when a countertenor sings it. We'll listen to just a snippet of it right about now. It's not the first time I found myself at a party at eight in the morning. Thank you. 
the spoons are here. affect as though she has done something horrible and very sad and tragic to this gentleman. Um, but no, it's about spoons. In other sections, a word suddenly seems to take over the entire score, transforming the music to respond to its meaning. As the guests declare they are enchanted to meet each other upon arriving at the house, this word transforms the music through repetition and elongation and dense texture, seeming to enchant them musically. Hades employs an obsessive number of tempo and metric indications in his score, calling for temporal adjustments moment by moment. It's a very good thing he's on the podium, that's all I have to say. <clears throat> the guest's enchanted trapped state is sometimes signaled by extended note values and progressively longer elongations. Um, there's a wonderful section here uh, right before uh, Julio serves the coffee, where they get longer, they're moving in quarter notes and then whole notes and then dotted whole notes and longer and longer and longer. And I'm not making this up. Um, Ades writes in the score, okay, on this couple measures, it's uh, half dotted half equals 96, but he wants retar retardando. And then it's, oh, now a measure later, it equals 84, and retardando molto, and then it's 72, and then molto retardando, what's the difference? I, I don't know. Right? And then it's you know, measure by measure by measure, he's adjusting and playing with time. And in this case, he's stretching it out. He's also doing something um, with pitch that's interesting. So Lucia sings, uh, would you care to join us, Blanca? She's singing to the pianist, and she sings, would you care to join us, Blanca? And she's alternating between perfect fourths, very nice you know, interval there, and alternating with tritones. Tritones, we won't go into music theory, but you have to take my word for it. And since the medieval period in European history, it's the devil's interval. Uh, Jimi Hendrix knew that in Purple Haze. He starts out with... Right, Purple Haze is a tritone, but anyway, uh, it's a devil's interval. And why? Because you can't tell where the music should go, where is home. And so it goes perfect fourth, then tritone, then perfect fourth, and then tritone. Okay, um, and that happens several times in the score, using tritones to also erase any sense of direction home. Um, earlier, the colonel notes, last night after the party, none of us made the slightest attempt to go home. 
And those two words, suddenly two other characters start seeing the words go home, go home, over and over and over and over again in waltz time and with tritone. So he's using every musical element, repetition, the waltz, and the tritone interval to, sense us, to give us a sense you can't go home, right? While they're singing, go home. What about the opera's surrealistic staging? Staging this opera is quite a challenge. A director must somehow define the space to signal the mysterious threshold that the characters find themselves unable to cross. They must also show the streetscape where the crowd of onlookers congregates. But the biggest challenge is to depict the surreal while also presenting reality that brings home the message that we too are guests trapped in various constraints in our lives or in life more generally. And there is the no small task of stage managing 15 so soloists at the same time. Buñuel had it easy, as I said, with the camera. He was able to frame individual small groups in dialogue and to present some wild imagery during the hallucination sequence through cinematic technology. How does the current Met production tackle these challenges? Well, first, the idea that we too have entered an enchanted space, that we are also stuck without the will to leave, is signaled, or the ability, is signaled near the very start. As the guests arrive, we see projected an image of the Met chandelier on the backdrop on stage, and the actual smaller chandeliers in the opera house are turned on and then rise up. This repeats right along with the sur surrealistic cinematic repetition of the guest's entrance. So that repetition is happening in the house also. Spotlights and careful blocking are employed to draw our attention to pairs and small groups of guests in conversation, though at some moments it remains difficult to determine which character is singing. The magic threshold has been magnified far beyond the dimensions of a simple doorway. In fact, this monumental wooden arch resembles a proscenium. Actually, it even resembles the curving shape of the Met's proscenium. The symbolism here becomes even more clear at the very end, as the entire cast compresses together and a series of these arch forms enclose them. The entire stage design, down to the furniture, is at one with Lincoln Center itself. Given that it was designed in the early 1960s, Lincoln Center, and the opera is set like the film in 1962. As I made my way to the garage on Thursday night, I pondered what it would be like to be trapped for life within an opera house built in 1966. And now, as I reach my concluding section, it is time for the big reveal, my interpretation of this opera. Have you heard the one of, about the group of wealthy socialites who attended dinner party for... Okay. Now seriously, not surrealistically, let's have some kind of conclusion. So what is the mysterious force that keeps these characters trapped? And is their predicament a metaphor for some larger real-world situation? Glancing back at Buñuel, we might proffer a political interpretation of both the film and opera. As I noted earlier, Buñuel was in exile in Mexico, self-exile in Mexico, when he made this film. Was he suggesting that the Spanish elite back at home were living in denial, trapped within the surrealist, fascist horror world of Franco? The film ends with the nobility stuck inside the cathedral, and armed soldiers apparently engaged in crowd dispersal in the square outside the cathedral. We hear the sound of the machine guns as we see the crowd fleeing in panic and confusion. 
The opera picks up on this with those offstage Kalando-inspired martial drums and with the sound of gunfire at two points in the opera. Is revolution or authoritarian suppression in the air? Are we too stuck in an oppressive and increasingly surreal society without the will or energy or ability to step outside? Or perhaps Odess is exploring the dark comedy of life through the multiple religious illusions in the opera. Sacrificial lamb, anyone? We see three lambs on stage at the start, perhaps suggesting the Last Supper, or given multiple Jewish cultural references in the opera, Passover. The Kalando drums are an Easter week tradition. However, responding to an anti-Semitic remark in the original film, which he cut for the opera, Adès selected Jewish texts for songs sung by the characters, and one character attempts to draw on the Kabbalah for guidance. One thing is for certain, music serves as the force field trapping these characters in the opera. As Raoul, one of the guests, states in an attempt to calm everyone down when it dawns on them that they have failed to leave the party, come on, don't exaggerate, we were all under the spell of the music. At various points, the characters seem trapped in repetitive structures, Pasakalia, Chacon, variation form. But unlike the final trio in Rossini's Barber of Seville, where the cabaletta form traps Figaro and his friends, here the music seems rather more ominous than humorous. The music seems rather threatening. As Odess has put it, often the music knows more than the people. Though the characters cannot leave the room, music can easily leap the boundary, as when Sylvia's lullaby is answered by her son's offstage voice. Music also proves the key that releases them, at least temporarily. As the guests prepare to sacrifice their host, Letitia, the opera singer, suddenly notices for the first time that they are all returned to the very same spots that they were in on that fateful night. She realizes that they must replay what they said that evening in order to work their way out of the past. That night, a guest declared that he wouldn't leave the house until Letitia sings, but she declined. Now the pianist plays the Paradisi, but this time when the guests ask Letitia herself to sing, she obliges. Reminds me of a line, it ain't over until the, um, this side of the room didn't get it at all. It ain't over till the, uh, for her final aria, Adès employed a 12th century Spanish Jewish text and has said that he wanted the aria to have the quality of 12th century music. Letitia sings, we, your scattered sheep, prisoners of desire, from the four ends of the earth, our dreaming spirits yearn. As she makes her way up to a high A. <laughs> Singing does the trick, and they are able to leave the room at long last. However, the opera does not end there. We hear the chorus, and the guests sing, Libera di morte eterna et lux eterna luciet, from the Libera Me text in the Mass. But instead of being freed, they are clearly trapped anew. In this final section, the offstage requiem repeats the same seven bars of the Chacon, and over and over again. Adès explains he wanted to convey the feeling that it's been singing this forever, and it will go on forever. This Chacon never ends, it just spirals down and down. At the end, we are all trapped in the repetition of three chords. There is no final double bar line in the score. Odessa has indicated that he takes Bunel's film quite seriously and that he feels it has a rather profound implication for our own experiences of life. As he put it, the feeling that the door is open but we don't go through it is with us all the time. Think about it. These people are stuck in a room full of extraordinarily interesting people. 
opera singer, conductor, pianist, a duchess, an explorer, wealthy socialites, and yet they panic and want to flee. Would we respond any differently? I'll share a private fantasy with you. When life gets particularly busy, I sometimes daydream of being housebound or quarantined with endless time to read all those books, listen to all those CDs that have been waiting for me. But what would I really do? Wouldn't I spend most of my time worrying about getting back into the swing of things? Life is motion. By moving through space and time, we live or feel the illusion of what we call life. We fantasize about the grand pause, stopping the clock, staying home, retreating from the world, and yet could we actually persist comfortably within the fermata? The final stage direction in the opera is, no one is able to leave the stage, blackout. How to find our own ending this evening? What would you do if you were stuck in a room with a group of fascinating people right before an opera was set to begin? What magical combination of words or music could I employ to release myself and my audience in time so that we may cross that threshold and find ourselves ensconced across the street inside the opera yet again? Twice for me. We have heard my voice and some music for well on an hour, and yet we are still here. Do we require a blood sacrifice to achieve our liberation? Libera me. Hmm. Perhaps a final bite of my spicy Merguz lamb sausage will release us. Ah, oh. oh. yes, finally, fine. Thank you. Thank you. That was W. Anthony Shepard with a Metropolitan Opera Guild pre-performance lecture on Thomas Addis's The Exterminating Angel. The Met's live in HD broadcast of this modern masterpiece is coming up on November 18th, so be sure to check your local movie theater listings. This is a work not to be missed. Visit metopera.org for more info. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.